Okay, so um, as uh, as you read on the website, perhaps that the the topic is around the balance of interdependence and codependence, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I I remember when I, in my early days in Buddhism, way in I started really. I feel like my practice really started in 1987 when I first met Thich Nhat Hanh and sat a retreat with him, and and I'd been reading before that, but. The early teachings about interdependence and how this is this because that is that and and um, you know dependent what is it called De- dependent co origination core teaching around everything is the product of causes and conditions nothing is a freestanding entity that just popped out of like Venus on a clamshell just popped into existence. Everything is created out of many, many factors, surrounding factors that create something that looks like an entity. And I kind of kind of got it, kind of didn't get it. Um, but I, I'm grateful to, um, to Thich Nhat Hanh because he teaches in such a, a simple, almost storybook way. And it just really helped me to understand this better. So I want to just read you um, something, one of the ways he talks about this phenomenon of material form arising out of multiple causes and conditions. He says, if you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. So imagine a sheet of paper and there's a cloud floating in it. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. The cloud is essential for the paper to exist. So we can say that the cloud and the paper inter-are. And this is a, a, a phrase that he created of interbeing and inter-are. We inter-are, uh, which I really love. If we look into this sheet of paper even more deeply, we can see the sunshine in it. If the sunshine is not there, the forest cannot grow. In fact, nothing can grow. Even we cannot grow without sunshine. And so we know that the sunshine is also in this sheet of paper. The paper and the sunshine inter-are. And if you look even deeper, you see the logger who cut the tree and the wheat that made the bread for him to eat. And the logger's father and mother are in the sheet of paper too. When we look at this, look at it this way, we see that without all these things, the sheet of paper cannot exist. So this is a very poetic, beautiful way of reminding me that I am this composite creation. And we all know this instinctively about ourselves that there's so many parental and ancestral influences that flow into us biologically in the DNA, but also in the habits, the even the quality of voice. I used to answer the phone when I was in my mother's home, and people would always say, oh, hello, Margie, because I sound just like her, you know. Um, you may, someone may have said to you, oh, you have your father's eyes, or oh, you have your mother's, you know, hair color, what, or your auntie's, you know, complexion. It's just so cool, really, you know, that, that we did not arrive here, you know, just like molded out of clay, like the Bible says at the beginning, you know, which was not this lump. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh's little phrase was, this is this because that is that, or I am you 
because you are you, or I, you are you because I am me, which is a profound truth about what we've been, I talked about at my last Dharma talk about the, the deep connections that go far beyond an individual identity. So just take a moment, if you will, and if you're comfortable, close your eyes, and just take a moment to reflect on what you know about yourself as a creation of many factors, touching on family background, of course, but also race, education, um, gender, whatever. Just dwell on yourself as a whirlpool with many streams running into it. Just take a moment with that. Okay. And, you know, the ego doesn't love this teaching, I've got to say. You know, that we are, human beings have this thing called an ego. And um, it has a lot of, of great things about it, but um, it uh, thrives on thinking of itself as individual and rather special. You know? <laughs> or perhaps individual and kind of inferior. And we can go, we can go a lot of different directions. But the ego is always uh, kind of an isolated, self-involved power. And I have such a such deep personal experience with this because I've been a performer my whole life. You know, I was performing in little piano recitals by the time I was six or something. And before that, I know you've all heard me say this before, but I was part of a minister's family. So we were in the public eye a lot. So I am someone who's been shaped by being very public for my whole life. And I, I became, and I took it on as my profession. And there, have, there were many, many decades where I was very dependent, very dependent on the applause and the affirmation and the, the uh, appreciation of audiences and people. And I, I needed it. And when I got what I needed, when I got those wonderful nights when everything clicked and everybody was crazy about me and thought I was the hottest thing, you know, oh, I just, I was so happy, right? But then there were other nights that weren't like that. There were nights when I was off or I just couldn't reach the audience. I couldn't feel it. I wasn't feeling it, you know? And I would go home in utter despair. And this is the teaching of the worldly winds, which I know Kate has talked about. The worldly winds that buffet the ego around. And just to remind you, the worldly winds are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And those are the extremes that this material world, this conditioned world, bounces us around in if we let it, right? So that's what I got from that um, isolated individual identity that I cultivated so hard. You know, it was like performers, like you got to shine. You got to stand out from the crowd. You have to make a mark as an individual because, you know, I mean, this is some of the common wisdom. I'm not saying this is true, but, you know, audiences are fickle, you know, and um, you got to just really put yourself out there and so forth. So that, that frankly led to an awful lot of unhappiness and thankfully it led me to the Dharma. And 
to also to other programs and other practices that help me to to kind of um, let go a little bit of those needs and see them for what they were. So what's happened in the last 10 years maybe or more is I've had this experience where someone will come up to me after a concert or an event and they'll say something really beautiful about my voice. They'll say, oh, your, your voice is just so healing and you just, I could listen to you all night, that kind of thing, you know. And instead of getting a kind of an ego rush, I'm like, yeah, phew, I needed that, you know. I say with complete genuineness, and I remember the first time I did it, it was very unstudied. It just came from my heart. I said, I can only sing that way when you listen deeply the way you all were listening tonight. I am this voice because you are these listeners. And it was absolutely true because I can go into a recording studio and I cannot sing that way. I have to have a, a people with me and a quality of listening that is magical. And you know, I know that from the listener's point of view, it looks like the performer or the singer, the whatever, is doing it, but I'm not, right? You know, we're doing it together. We inter-are, we inter-sing, we inter-listen. I'm feeling you and something fills my heart and something comes out of my voice that I could never manufacture. I can't learn it from a vocal coach. So this has been a really beautiful lesson for me to, to really realize I am not the one doing this and isn't that wonderful, you know. A second little example I thought of is little Khalil. You know that when I go to take care of Khalil, who's now about nine months old, um, and I, I, I care for him from time to time, um, I love doing it, even if it's difficult, which it can be, but I love doing it because a different part of my personality comes out. And you all know from being with little children how all of a sudden you're this playful, fun, or can be this playful, funny, um, I don't know, devil-may-care person, like, yeah, let's try that, or let's, let's just roll around in the mud, or whatever. And I love who I am when I'm with a little baby. I'm just someone that I love to be, but I don't necessarily access her in other settings. It takes the baby or the child to draw it out of me. Do, do you know what I mean? It's just, and there's just, and, and maybe in your life, there's certain people with whom parts of you come forth that you, that you know are there, but they can't just be manufactured out, right? In fact, take a moment, take another moment and just let it go back into reflection and close your eyes if you like and just think about where do parts of you get drawn out naturally and effortlessly because of who you're with or the situation that you're in. Yeah. Were you able to think of, of one or two things, maybe? Yeah? I hope so, because I think it's a deep truth of our lives that part of, of how we become, how I become my fullest self, I think where we become our fullest selves, is in the companionship of, of other trusted um, allies, trusted friends. That's why the Buddha made such a point of Sangha. And like-minded friends, good friends, um, that's exactly what that was about, I think. So this, and all of these teachings go against a, a really profound American myth that I grew up with. 
and I can only speak for myself, but I, th I think we, we can all agree that, that there's these core myths in America about rugged individualism, the self-made man, um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and kind of a meritocracy where if we get good fortune, if we get good jobs, if we get good money, if we get recognition, it's because of our own inherent merit and we worked for it, and we're just that kind of person, you know? <laughs> and isn't it too bad that some of the rest of you aren't, right? That is, to me, this the curse of American individualism. And, um, and you know, it, I see it happening just as a little bit of a, of a digression, but I've been thinking a lot, I'm sure you have too, about the, the hysterical anti-vax, anti-mask energy that some people have. And what, when you really probe, when they get probed about it, it often comes down to, I don't want the government to tell me what to do. It's like this belief system that I am an individual with complete free choice, completely independent of others, and who will I be if the government tells me what to do? It's like an identity loss. And so people actually become rather insane, insanely ir irrational about a life-saving you know, practice that would help them and their community because of a fear of losing identity. I mean, that's the toxicity that individualism can take us to. So, and then just, I think a lot of us um, are realizing, especially folks who are white and have some privilege, that these successes that I, as I was growing up, thought were special because I was special, you know, good college and, you know, just, um, you know, being socially included and, and invited and admired and this and that and the other, or having a nice house and a nice neighborhood, that that, that was all because of merit. And in fact, we know now that no, not, not really, you know, it's really just... Um, white supremacy as a cause and condition that creates, that elevates some and depresses others, you know, and those are societal causes and conditions that create outcomes that can look like individual merit if you want to, if you want to see it that way, you know, but that's delusion. That's really delusion. So interconnection is related to one of the Brahma Viharas, at least, maybe all of them, probably all of them really, but I'm thinking about compassion right now. You know, that compassion is that, you know, that beautiful definition of it, the Pali translation, the trembling or quivering of one's heart in response to seeing pain and suffering, that it is just, because we are so connected, we really can't look at pictures of hungry kids or people fleeing to escape a bomb or wading through floodwaters with all their belongings on their heads. I think it's almost impossible for us humans uh, to look at those without feeling a quiver. I mean, I feel it right now. I just feel a little teary just saying those words about people wading through floods, you know. This is our, our innate nature. Our brains are wired this way, you know, honestly. There's this thing they've, they've discovered recently called mirror neurons, which are ways that neurons activate in the brain so that when someone else, we see someone else doing something, let's say, that's painful, like burning their hand on a hot stove, we actually, our brain registers it as if we were feeling that. And it's not like we actually feel the amount of pain that that person would feel. But every other reaction is empathy beyond empathy. So this is, you know, the way we are wired. And, the part, and another part of that, when we feel that quivering, 
is I think a very strong urge to want to do something. You know, again, that, that we want to alleviate suffering. That's just part of us. So <laughs> compassion does have a near and a far enemy, though. You remember that teaching that for every Brahma Vihara, there is a near enemy and a far enemy. So in compassion, the far enemy is cruelty and indifference um, and inflicting suffering. That is the, the furthest away from compassion you can get. And then the near enemy, which is that shadow one, the one that kind of looks like it, but kind of really isn't quite it. And that's that, that pity, um, and sympathy, and there's a little bit of a, a, a one-up quality like that. Like, that's not me. I, that wouldn't happen to me. And I'm so sorry it happened to you. And since I'm not, you know, kind of <laughs> afflicted like you are, I will save you in some way. I will figure, you know, it's that whole thing. And I'm being a little exaggerated, but I, th I, know, I know you know what I mean, that there's um, a lack of connection within that pity and that sympathy. It looks like connection, but it really isn't. So, you know, in terms of that indifference and that cruelty, I think our immigration policies currently are a horrible example of the cruelty of it within systems that is the, the complete distance from compassion. And our former president modeled so much of, of this kind of callous cruelty. And um, some of it, unfortunately, is still still continuing, I feel, in our policy around Haitian refugees right now and other things like that. So I thought I would share with you as a beautiful counter-medicine to that, um, that cruelty we are seeing with immigration, one of my favorite poems. It's very short, and it's by Fadi Judah. Fadi Judah. It's called Mimes Mimesis. She says... My daughter wouldn't hurt a spider that had nested between her bicycle handles for two weeks. She waited until it left of its own accord. If you tear down the web, I said, it will simply know this isn't a place to call home and you'd like to go biking. And she said, but that's how others become refugees, isn't it? Mm. So, now I want to talk about the downside of interbeing. Who knew? <laughs> but it's something that's troubled me for many years listening to the teachings about interconnection when a, a beautiful teacher says, I am this because you are that. There's this little voice in my head says, oh, does that mean it's true when an abuser says, well, I only hit you because you drove me to it with your big mouth or whatever. It's, I mean, that doesn't feel like interconnection to me or, or wise interdependence. So as I say, I've really been thinking about this. And I, I, what I come to is the importance of women especially to fly with the, the two wings that they always talk about. In, in, with compassion, they talk about the two wings of compassion and wisdom. And there's this phrase you may have heard of called idiot compassion, which is the kind of compassion that just will expend themselves until there's nothing left for the sake of saving everything or everybody or ignoring terrible behavior because don't you know they're a human being and they, they have their reasons, you know, and that's a kind of idiot compassion that ha doesn't have wisdom in it. So what would wisdom mean 
um, to balance our compassion and our deep knowledge of intercorrection connection. Because we're becoming aware through the Me Too movement, and probably way before that we were all becoming aware of it, but I feel like Me Too really brought it into the neon, and it put a lot of language to it. And also we got to hear, got had to hear, a lot of horrifying stories about what perpetrators have done on the big societal scale, the Hollywood moguls, the, the, the uh, athletic coaches, you know, the, the politicians, you name it. So it's been, it's been, it's in our minds, isn't it? And so there's this awareness growing that these beautiful qualities of compassion and interdependence and empathy, which many, many women seem to specialize in. And you know what, some of that is our conditioning and I'm not sorry for it myself, actually. I feel very lucky <laughs> to have been born a woman and to um, be, be wired for and conditioned for the village, for being part of something and for making sure that the village is doing okay, you know? This is, this is an incredible gift to humanity. And we also have some hormones that really help out, you know, oxytocin and other hormones that, that really assist in this whole project. And then, interbeing's near enemy is toxic, a toxic use of those very qualities used against us as a weapon, weaponizing those very beautiful qualities and it turning it into blaming, gaslighting, this expression that's becoming much more known now. And in case you, in case you don't know what gaslighting is, it it's, comes from a movie by Alfred Hitchcock, the, the master of terror, <laughs> called Gaslight. And it's about a man who does, does psychological torture on a woman. I can't even remember why, whether he wanted a divorce or what, but he, he found ways to make her slowly believe that she was crazy by just denying her reality, saying, oh, I didn't say that, I didn't promise that, I didn't do that, um, just turning reality on its head. It's very frightening. It's, a, it's an old movie. So now this is something that emotional abusers and physical abusers do as part of keeping their, their, the object of this um, off balance and doubting themselves, doubting their truth and their experience. So on the public level, as I mentioned, we've had all these major people abusing their power. Um, and the very sense of connection that makes us such a powerful force in the community just gets exploited. And often by men, you know, I won't say universally, but I think we can agree it's largely men doing it to women. And I, I, I feel it perhaps is a reflection of men's, it much, seems much harder for many men to feel that connectedness that we're talking about that is so innate. And they try to find it through women and find a sense of connection. And also, but unfortunately also that toxic need to have power. So I have a friend who um, is a former athlete, a mindfulness teacher, and um, a few other things, quite an amazing woman. And she wrote a very long and very powerful article about women athletes and the abuse within the athletic community. And I want to read just a little bit of her article because it's, I had never thought about this really, about how co the, the style of coaching that a lot of coaches do with kids and, and older is so parallel to emotional abuse. So she says, the coach manipulates the athlete, exploiting the athlete's deep desire for improvements and fear of failure 
The coach subtly implies and or directly states that the athlete's success is entirely due to the coach and that the athlete won't progress and achieve her goals without the coach. The coach repeats fear-inducing statements, statements such as, I made you the success that you are. Without me, you will never live up to your true potential. You'll just be another unknown has-been. And inversely, the coach attributes all the lack of progress in the athlete solely on the athlete. You're not working out enough. You weren't listening to me. Over time, these abusive techniques cause the athlete to develop a desperate desire to please and a simultaneous fear of and debilitating dependency on the coach. This undermines the athlete's ability to trust her own inner wisdom moment to moment and erodes her faith in herself. Ultimately, these tactics magnify the pre-existing power dynamic, making the coach all-powerful and the athlete powerless. Like an abusive spouse, boss, or priest, an emotionally abusive coach may require his athletes to maintain silence and lie to their own detriment. He uses phrases commonly used by many abusers. Don't tell anyone about this. Let's just keep this between us. If anyone asks, just say, or this is the gaslighting, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. You misunderstood. You aren't remembering it correctly. That's not what happened. I only want what's best for you. And one of the ways, I have to say, this is a very dark topic. <laughs> it is not, it is painful to, to bring this to you. And I, I was thinking earlier about how my 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 desire always is to be is to serve our our greater health and our greater growth and and so it's hard to speak of things that are painful and can probably bring up feelings memories um our own experiences but i do feel like they say the truth will set you free. It just puts you through the ringer first, right? So I do do believe, and I know that the Buddha sometimes, his teachings could be very tough, and he could be very tough on people. Not that I'm being tough on anybody here directly at all, but um, it's not about nice. You know, it's not about, oh, it's so lovely to be so interconnected. It's hard to be interconnected. It's painful sometimes. So one of the ways I've come to realize how my conditioning as a woman can play into the getting caught up in this kind of a dynamic, and I will say, quite honestly, I have been emotionally abused, and I didn't know it at the time. I didn't have a name for it, and it's taken years to understand that um, and really name it and really understand it. So um, the, a couple of things that I think can happen to women in our conditioning is that we, we try to create safety for ourselves by being pleasing, by pleasing others, trying to be what others seem to want, placating, making sure everyone around us is happy if, if we possibly can. Some of this can come from trauma, can come from childhood abuse, and it's a survival skill, you know? I'm gonna make sure nobody's mad at me, right? You know, and um, that, so that's one pattern that sometimes can happen. Another pattern is to affiliate with a, a more powerful man who seems to be the gatekeeper to our dreams. And the athletic coach is a perfect example of that. But also a boss who I know a job promotion, getting the position that I aspire to and feel I'm really capable of, I have to please this guy, right? He is the gatekeeper for that. And even just, you know, placating the partner, the male partner, 
because you need a place to live and food on the table. How many women who are, we know, abused and, and people say, why doesn't she just leave? Well, food on the table, roof over her head, economic insecurity. So, you know, we are in some ways conditioned to play into this and participate in this dynamic. So, and that does not mean it is our fault. That is not interconnection and interbeing. So another, other ways that this kind of, closer to home, this kind of robbery of a sense of agency and bodily integrity, some of the examples that I thought of is a child. A child may blurt out something like, I don't like Aunt Emmy. And adults may say something like, oh, you don't really feel that way. As if the adult knows what the child is feeling, right? But it's like, it's really the message is, it's not okay to feel that, but it comes out of, you don't feel that way. Or my son, when he was little, the door was open, his dad opened the door and it was a cool day and um, he, he and I were both a little cold and, and my son said something like, um, oh God, what did he say? He said, he said oh, I'm, I'm cold. And his dad, who was not as conscious then as he is now, said, you're not cold, it's perfectly nice outside. <laughs> right? This is adultism. I mean, this is stuff we do as adults we don't even realize. Or, um, Parents and other adult children, this is happening a lot, adult figures rather, tell transgender youth, you don't know your own body. You don't know that. You're a girl. You're a boy. You can't, what you feel can't be true. I mean, what an incredible invasion into bodily integrity for someone to have this incredibly powerful feeling that they're not in the right body and to have adults saying, oh, you don't, you know, you don't know. What, you don't, don't listen to that. And how many LGBTQ youth, right, and even adults have been told, you're not really gay, you're not really bi, you're just confused. You'll grow out of it, right? So there's all these ways. Um, oh, and then just people of color in the United States just targeted with so much victim blaming and shaming, you know, of why these, you know, neighborhoods, crime-ridden neighborhood, all this, you know, whatever with complete denial that all those symptoms are the results of white supremacy. And yet it's so convenient for white, the white supremacy system. We are the causes and conditions, but it's so convenient to blame and make responsible, deflecting it onto those who are the target. So yeah, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. Um, so, and then in terms of the, um, the codependence in a personal relationship, and I'll just say a word about intimate partner abuse, which is um, a person, the abuser can subtly or covertly demand that their partner fulfill certain roles in his or her life or the family life in order for them to be happy. I need dinner on the table at six. I need those children washed and ready for bed. By, I'm tired when I get home. I, you know, this kind of, this is how it has to be for me to be okay which is codependence, isn't it? It's waiting for someone else to take care of your needs, right? And your feelings. And as I mentioned before, the physical abuse that they, where they say, well, if you hadn't done such and such, I wouldn't have been driven to this. So again, so not responsible. And I just will say that one of the young athletes who was uh, quoted in the article by my friend, it was so beautiful. She said, she was interviewed and she said, I forgive the coach who abused me. But there still has to be accountability. And those are the two wings of compassion and wisdom, right? 
that wisdom is about justice, accountability, telling the truth, um, owning our truth, and not participating in lies, not going along with it, right? Um, so I want you once again, just for one moment, to just reflect on your personal experience of being part of these systems, how they flow through us and impact our lives. You may have past memories, you may have current situations that still are troubling. Just, I just want to give a moment for this, because I know this can stir up a lot. just shifting for a moment into staying in this reflective place and space to imagining the truth that you are responsible, we are responsible for our needs, our happiness, and our autonomy and we are deeply connected to everything and everyone. Kind of, how would that be? Just see if you can breathe into that space for a minute, this both and, this, this wisdom and this compassion and connection. Maybe just let your back straighten a bit if it's not, not if it's slumping and let a big breath fill you. And then coming back together. And, and this is all going by pretty fast. This is like unpacking a lot in a very short time. So I um, hope that you'll be able to, to practice further with any of this that feels like it could use some more uh, bringing to the light, some more being with, allowing. And, um, and yeah, yeah, there's there's so much more. I even thought about dividing the talk into two parts and only doing the, the positive interbeing part this week and then doing the the dark side <laughs> at my next Dharma talk. But then I thought, no, a whole Dharma talk on that? I don't I don't know. <laughs> but um so this wisdom is just something we're gonna spend our whole lives cultivating, right? And um I just want to close with a couple a couple of last thoughts. Uh, we live in a world where there is sexism, racism, classism, and all else. All else. And part of recovering from codependence, if any of you are struggle with that as I do, and with sometimes idiot compassion of being too forgiving, um, trying to be a good Buddhist, but not, but forgetting the accountability, right? And so I feel like there there are these conditions in the world, and to collaborate with these, either as a perpetrator or as a participant or as one who lets it go by and, and doesn't find my voice in relation to it, is a karmic, it has karmic consequences. And remember the five remembrances about I am aging, nothing can protect me from aging, I am of the nature to die, nothing can protect me from death. These are, I am of the nature to be separated from all I love, nothing can protect me from that, and I can't remember the other one, but the fifth one is 
I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions. Whatever I do, for good or for evil, to that I will fall heir. So this is where there is an individual self that has karmic responsibilities and karmic actions and consequences. It's such a complex teaching. <laughs> I was listening to some talk recently and the, the teacher the, um, said the Buddha, some of the Buddha's teachings, when he would go into a particular sutta or a particular teaching, he would say, this dharma is beyond words. No words can capture this dharma. And I feel like this is one of those moments for me where it's so kind of amazing that all this has to, to live together, the individual karmic responsibilities and the complete knowledge that I'm a conditioned, created being out of many forces that are not me. It's all there. It's all there. And um, we fly with both wings, you know, and somehow we seem to, to be able to do it. So, oh, I think I'll just, I'll just stop there and uh, give you a moment or two to respond or bring up any concerns or questions or just share something that mattered to you during this talk, something that you'd like to share. Ari? Oh, my boss is definitely emotionally abusive. And I didn't realize until right now um, that that's like why my brain, I was just, I've just been really upset and um, just noticing the reaction of the interns that I'm supervising. And um, it was just really helpful to have that framing because it, it's really helpful, I think, to have the language. Um. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.